Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back. My guest today is Katie Weber. Katie is a holistic health coach and an ADHD advocate. She's also the host of the Women and ADHD podcast and the author of the book, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom. Welcome, Katie. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I'm really excited to talk to, uh, let me call you a fellow ADHD advocate. Um, because ultimately both our goals are to, uh, help children, adults, men, women, girls, boys to thrive in life, right? Whether they have what they call a so-called disorder or whether they don't or do, or whether they believe in it or not, essentially, you know, eventually we all want to thrive. So I'm really excited about diving in. Um, I always start, not always, most of the time, start with the question, what is ADHD? So I would just love to hear your your own take on ADHD. Uh, great question. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny because I ask my guests on my podcast, what would you rename it? Because I feel like those four letters or three technically uh, are so problematic for so many of us, especially so many of the women who I have uh, interviewed who never related to the H in ADHD, the hyperactive element and, um, or attention deficit. I mean, for the most part, we have an abundance of attention. <laughs> uh, we do not have a deficit of attention. So I find that the term ADHD can, it, it misrepresents so many of us. Um, now, when you say that, uh, and I agree, uh, does it rep misrepresent especially women, girls and women, uh, or you just mean in general? I think it's just misunderstood. I think from what I have understood, you know, from what I've learned about my own hyperactivity, I think so much of it is internalized, right? You know, and, and so f as girls, we, girls are often not the disruptive children in the classroom who can't sit still. And those are the ones who get picked out, plucked out by teachers who are said, you know, diagnosed with ADHD. You had a similar experience with your son, Kai, you know, that's sort of the typical boy experience and girls so often are the daydreamers. They are the inattentive types, the doodlers, you know, the ones who really are people pleasers who internalize a lot of their hyperactivity. And, but it's still there. It's just that by the time we get to adulthood, we, we don't really, see it as hyperactivity, but I have right. yet, I've interviewed more than 60 women at this point and not a single one of them was not hyperactive in some way when she got excited about things, you know? <laughs> uh, so, um, which by the way, if something really exciting happens and you don't get really excited, then you're not human, you know? Right? Well, that's true. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, and also they, they used to, sorry, they used to call them space cadets. I remember, well, yes. right? which was such a, I mean, now it's a derogatory term, but it just feels so weird, yeah, you know, yeah. space cadets. And I was the nonstop talker. That was something that I realized going back through my childhood report cards. You know, I was always 
plucked out of the um, pods in my classroom. I was in the gifted program and we were always in these like pods and I was the talker. So I was always pulled away and had to sit next to the teacher, which was actually not the end of the world because I could kind of look over and survey the classroom and it was really entertaining. But um, so I think there's just ways in which we forget what hyperactivity looks like. And so when somebody says the term ADHD, we're just so conditioned to think of the stereotype of the little boy who can't sit still that we just immediately dismiss, you know, what it is. And, and we sort of decide that, um, you know, it just continues to be misunderstood. So I often, you know, I really like terms like neurodivergent um, and terms that really kind of talk about what we are experiencing as a neurotype. And I often, like when I talk about it with my kids, uh, I liken it to being left-handed, right? So it's sort of like, you know, there's a portion of the population, roughly 10%, who are left-handed. And, you know, if you don't know that you're left-handed and you're handed right-handed scissors and you're forced to sit at right-handed desks all your life, you know, you're not going to be able to do things that other people can. And you're going to think it's your fault or you're going to think that you're deficient somehow. And it's really just a matter of like finding the tools that work for you. So I much, you know, I much prefer terms that just refer to or at least, you know, acknowledge a certain neurotype than, yeah, than certain... a medical, the medicalized diagnosis of ADHD. Right. I think what I'm hearing you say is like it's and, and I agree with that. There's nothing wrong with the child there's something different with them and they, and we need to perhaps figure out like, how can we cater to that child's learning style so that the environment is conducive, right? They can actually feel like, Oh, i I'm at home here. This is, these are my people. Right. I can learn this way. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and how did you um, end up becoming an ADHD advocate? I mean, obviously you said you dealt with this uh, condition yourself. At what point did you decide that, you know what, I got to do more than just work on myself or figure out who I am, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a combination of kind of impulsivity and uh, you know um, the idea of kind of so many of us get are very excitable and and we overshare and we live out loud and we get really you know I think it was sort of a product of my own hyper focus when I did get diagnosed. I was diagnosed uh, during the pandemic, and. Um, you know, a lot of women my age uh, will are often diagnosed through their children. And I was not one of those um, women. I was diagnosed, I had a therapist who has ADHD and I've had her for years. And she has always sort of gently suggested that I might look into uh, ADHD. And my response yeah. was always, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not hyperactive. I actually can get like quite depressed and will, you know, have... Days where I will feel, you know, despondent and lie on the couch. So I never really identified with the hyperactive element. And then in the pandemic, when we were, when uh, suddenly my kids were home, my husband was home. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a coach, so I couldn't focus on my business because I was always on call because everybody was on Zoom and and everybody needed help, and I couldn't focus on anything. And I was really, really struggling with like you know, feeling like I had all of this energy that I needed to do stuff, but couldn't do it. And I was so when I was talking to my therapist about that. And uh, she was like, I think you really should look into what ADHD is and how it manifests in women, how it manifests in perimenopausal women and, you know, really try to understand it. And I was like, well, all right, I guess. 
And that's when I started looking into, you know, what it is and was just, you know, like many people who adults who are diagnosed was just like, I have never felt more seen or understood by anything in my life. And I just like dove down these rabbit holes of learning about, you know, what it is and the emotional regulation piece and the, the, you know, having been diagnosed with depression and anxiety for most of my adult life and have been on some cocktail of medications uh, for, for depression and anxiety, this just, and, and never feeling like that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, this was just some, suddenly it felt like all of these seemingly random struggles, um, kind of neatly f- came into this one little package of ADHD. And that just felt so overwhelming. I mean, it was so incredibly mind blowing to me and so overwhelming. And I thought there's gotta be other women who are experiencing this, who had no idea what ADHD is and are being misdiagnosed as being depressed and and having depression and anxiety, having postpartum depression and anxiety, like all of these things that I experienced, I thought there must be other women who are going through this. Uh, And that's kind of how the podcast started. So it's really just, I think, comes from that overwhelming need. The advocacy part comes from the overwhelming need to like save other people who might be, (laughs) you know, who who might not know about this. And I think a lot of us with ADHD do that. I mean, you've started a podcast as well. Like there's this idea that like you really want to disseminate this information and and get this out there. Yeah, no, that's a great story. And, you know, most of my ADHD experts I've interviewed, from the top guys to, to the ones that are newer, they all either have it themselves or one of their children had it. And that's what propelled them into it, right? Because mm, yeah. most of us don't go through life thinking, uh, you know, what should I be majoring in? Or what should I be teaching? Or what should, you know, oh, ADHD seems like a good subject, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. It's maybe, some, maybe some do, right? But <laughs> um, So I wanted to ask, because I've heard this term before, uh, ADHD advocate, um, what, what does it mean to you? What is it, what does that term stand for? What do you believe in as an advocate? Yeah. Uh, I, hmm? I think the term advocate for me, I mean, I don't, I don't pretend to be an expert by any means. I mean, I do feel like I am learning a ton about it just because it's so interesting to me. And because I'm having these interviews and talking to women and, 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 um, I feel like I'm. There's a part of me that is kind of unintentionally getting my PhD in ADHD by having this podcast, uh, but I also don't. You know, I'm not an expert, um, and um, I'm a journalist. I'm a seeker. I'm a question asker, and so for me, advocate felt like the perfect term to really sort of be somebody who spreads awareness and and disseminates the information and asks the questions and keeps the conversation going and really tries to eliminate a lot of the stigma that's out there and really kind of, um, you know, help put a face to a really, really misunderstood um, diagnosis for so many people. I mean, even the term diagnosis, when I kind of came out about having ADHD, you know, so many people in my life were like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, they felt really bad for me. Like I had a terminal illness because it's a disorder and you're diagnosed. And I'm like, no, this is re- really like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, understanding how my brain works and being able to work with it finally and not feeling like I'm a terrible, lazy human being was really like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, but it's, you know, so again, it's like putting a, a more positive spin and a face to what this is. Nice, nice. Yeah. So now, you know, 
there's a couple of things I wanted to say. So first of all, um, you know, there's obviously a difference between kids getting a diagnosis and adults, right? For a child, as we're finding out, there's many studies that that show that, you know, when kids hear, when they go to evaluation, right? Anytime there's an assessment, there's a certain uh, pressure, there's a certain fear, there's, you know, they have to, they have to deliver, right? Uh, when you take a test or you're getting assessed from a doctor, you want to be good, you want to be healthy. And when they hear the news and most uh, clinicians, let's face it, are not very good at wrapping up these diagnoses, these words, you know, with a little sugar, you know, uh, most of them are just blunt. They're like, this is what the label is. This is what it is. We're not going to sugarcoat it as adults. Like you said, a lot of adults feel like, oh, this is great. It's, it's a weight lifted off my shoulder. Cause now I know what I have. Right. My question is, um, do you feel there's a little danger perhaps in leaning on a, um, a disorder or a something, and I'm not saying for you or for me or, you know, but for some people that there's a little bit of a danger of like, oh, that's why I can't be functioning really well because I have this thing. So I'm going to use it a little bit here and there as an excuse. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I have ADHD. Like, you know, we've all come across that person, but um, do you feel there's a little bit of a danger for, for, I call it the victim mentality where it's like, I have this thing now. So unless I can get it fixed, it's just this little thing that's that's broken, right? Even if we're adults, we feel like we're not quite as well-functioning as other adults that don't have ADHD. Just curious what, what you feel. Um, have you seen perhaps some people fall into that trap? Yeah, I think it's inevitable with any any kind of self-realization or, or any sort of uh, psychiatric diagnosis that you could use it as an excuse. I feel like that's such a, um, I mean, it's really a case by case basis in terms of how you react to a diagnosis. I mean, you know, I, I would never think ADHD is an excuse to be an asshole. Like for instance, right. I, you know, um, I use the example of being late, you know, there's, there is this misconception that people who have ADHD are always late. And I thought to myself when I was diagnosed and I'm learning more about it, I was like, that's funny because I'm actually extremely prompt and I go out of my way and work really hard to create a lot of structures and reminders and alerts and all of these things. It's really important to me to be on time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, so, so I, but I also understand and empathize with somebody who might struggle with that. And I've certainly had examples where I was about to leave the house and suddenly decided I needed to mop the floor. <laughs> you know, like we, <laughs> you know, there are times where it happens, but I think for the most part, it's not, I would never be like, Oh, well, I have ADHD, therefore I can be late. And you need to understand that about me. I mean, I think that absolutely there's always going to be that uh, trap with a diagnosis that you can sort of sit back on your laurels and use it as an excuse. But I think for the most part, what I've, what I've noticed and what I've experienced is like, no, this is finally, I feel empowered to lean into my strengths and to understand that I was working really, really hard when I was coming up with all those structures. You know, I remember going to my doctor's office when I was getting my diagnosis and she was asking me like, do you lose your keys or some of these questions on the, on the mm -hmm. diagnostic test? And I was like, no, I actually really work. You know, I do all of this and I have my place where I put things and I'm, I, you know, as I was explaining to her, all of the ways in which I work hard to make these structures. So I don't lose things. She 
acknowledged like, wow, you work really, really hard. And I wanted to cry. I was like, I don't think anybody's ever said I work hard. You know, like my narrative was always one of being lazy. And, and so it's just like knowing those, you know, having those kind of light bulb moments, I think yeah. has really, really changed my internal narrative about who I am and how hard I do work. So it's a little bit of like being seen and acknowledged for that, for the struggle you have, the struggle you're dealing with, because it is a struggle or say friction with between you and the environment, right? Like you said, how you get distracted or, um, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it's that weight off the shoulder that, oh, you see that I, I like you said, I do work hard mm -hmm. on getting out the door on time on not misplacing my keys on, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And I, so, yeah, I think it is the acknowledgement for sure. And, um, and, you know, I've, I've heard it referred to a lot, um, as what, uh, as piece of shit syndrome, you know, which was something I felt like I experienced, which was like this, this, um, inverse relationship between how much you actually accomplish versus how you feel about yourself and your, these accomplishments. Right. And so yeah. that I really related to when I was diagnosed. And I think that was something my therapist saw in me too, which was like, here you are doing all of these things, working really hard. And yet you still feel terrible about yourself and you still talk about yourself in such a terrible way. And so for me, I think just realizing that I did that and, and being able to, you know, my diagnosis has really kind of allowed me to amplify all of the amazing things I am doing and not kind of focus only on the terrible things. And I think that has a lot to do with like dope seeking to the dopamine. And, you know, there's so many mm -hmm. reasons why it's more interesting for our brains to focus on the terrible things about us. Uh, right. So it's, this has helped me kind of be remind myself that like, no, actually um, you are actually doing some amazing things. Yeah. And so do you, what about like, if somebody gets diagnosed, right? So they know, they, now they know, let's say, uh, we call it, there's an official diagnosis or a description of their struggles or their behaviors. Now they know, uh, does that person, do you feel like they need to take on that label? They need to call themselves, I have ADHD or is it enough to just know, Oh, it looks like the establishment calls it ADHD. They say, that's what I have, but I'm just going to work on, you know, improving my way of interacting in the world. I don't really need to uh, take on the label. I know we're, we're slicing, we're like yeah. using a scalpel here, but well, what, does the, what does that bring? I, you know, I feel like a lot of this, a lot of ADHD is self-diagnosis for me. I don't think you necessarily even need to go to a doctor and get a medical diagnosis. I think ADHD is one of those things that the treatment, as far as I'm concerned, is knowing what it is, knowing this sort of neurodivergence and being able to then do the research, do the work, lean into your strengths, find the structures you need, understand what is happening and how you can work with it. So before, you know, if you really want to get a medical diagnosis because you feel like it will somehow validate your own thoughts about yourself, because so many of us have grown up with an enormous amount of self-doubt in so many of the structures in which we were in, where because we felt like we were the problem, right? Like you were saying earlier, it's the, it's the yeah. system that's the problem, but we always felt like we were the problem. So naturally, as you get to adulthood, you know, self self um, doubt is going to be something we all struggle with. We're not ter <laughs> terribly intuitive people. Um, 
And so I think, you know, if you need a, if you need to go to a doctor and get a diagnosis for basically for two reasons, to feel validated, uh, that, that you're on the right track, which can be helpful for us as well. Um, and then the other option is medication, which I think, you know, isn't, again, is a, is a personal choice. We can talk about that. I know you love to talk, <laughs> talk about medication. Always. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, but I also feel like when you go to the doctor, if a doctor says you have ADHD, here's your prescription. And then you leave and you don't do any research. You don't learn about what is happening. And you just say, I'm going to take this pill and everything's going to be great. Then you're in for a world of trouble yeah. uh, because there's yeah. so much more to living with ADHD than just taking a pill every day. Um, and so I think the self-diagnosis is the, is, you know, 90% of the treatment as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. And, you know, I, I'm always about, um, you know, talking about alternatives and looking at, like you said, holistically look at the whole picture, right? Medication is not bad. It's just, and I mostly talk to parents and, or with children with ADHD, and especially for young brains, right? There's 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 now uh, more long-term studies, or you know, that show that there is there is some damage happening, and so that's still kind of being ignored. Um, but yeah, before we talk about medication, um, you know, in terms of like you said, you you kind of do a self-diagnosis, you you then you go to work, right? Because you know there's some uh, work to be done so that, that you can function in, in this society. And I think part of the work is just putting yourself into the right environment, getting yourself the right support, right? I now know that I'm not great at handwriting stuff down and I need to, you know, use a voice recorder, right? I don't, there's certain things that I work better for me, right? And that's just how I function. So right. there's many dyslexic billionaires out there. I always use that example because, People feel like if you're dyslexic, you're never going to be anyone because you can't study and learn. And, you know, we all know that's not true. Um, but so staying with that, um, you know, there's 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 that school of thought that like ADHD is is made up. It's not real. And I know that's a um, again, we have to slice the words because people get so activated, like triggered when when I say sometimes like it's made up. It's a fact. It's not a we didn't find it. Um, and we labeled it and, and here now is that thing, but we're so, you and I are so used to say, oh, somebody has ADHD, right? And I try so hard in my episodes to stay away from saying it that way, but saying that somebody who was labeled with this term that was invented or created, but it's really about behaviors. So I want to talk about behaviors, right? A lot of the experts I interviewed say, um, we're, we're looking at these behaviors and then we call them symptoms because that's the medical term. And then we need a label to bunch the symptoms together into, uh, you know, for pathology, I guess, to have this disorder. And then we label that and then we, you know, sell drugs or do treatments or create a whole business around it. So where do you think, uh, talking about, this is a long-winded getting to the answer, but uh, when we compare girls with boys, right? If these are behaviors, where... First of all, where do you think these behaviors come from and how come it's different for boys and girls, right? There's a, I think it's like 12.5% boys and 5.6 girls, I think, according to the CDC website. So definitely way less girls than boys are diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Where are these behavior coming from, do you think? You know, I always really liked your term collateral symptoms, um, mm. uh, you know, because I feel like that's... 
I really dislike the term comorbidities because yeah. I feel like so many of these comorbidities that are referenced um, in the medical field with reference to ADHD are actually symptoms of an undiagnosed life, right? And so we like to talk a lot about the fact that a lot of the ADHD symptoms are found in people with uh, people who have experienced trauma. And so like, how do you even begin to untangle what is ADHD and what is a trauma symptom? And, and again, like sometimes I fall down these really deep rabbit holes of like, okay, maybe it was just childhood trauma. Maybe my parents fought too much, you know, maybe it was this and it's not that, you know, and I think you, it's, you know, it's the ADHD that is making me fall down these rabbit holes and obsessively ask these questions, right? <laughs> So I have to remember that I'm like, you know, the ADHD starts, it, I do believe it's a genetic, I believe it, you know, you are a neurotype. And I think that there are things that you're predisposed. But I also think that a lot of the symptoms come from your, you know, come from Nate. Uh, nurture, right? So nature versus nurture, right? So we're talking mm -hmm. about like your childhood experiences. And, you know, there are ways in which the severity, severity of your symptoms come from your, your um, school situation or your home life, or, you know, a lot of these ways that they are exacerbated. And so I think, you know, it's why boys are diagnosed as children, because we are all asked to do something that is Un, you know, unheard of, which is to sit in classrooms and stare straight ahead and listen to teachers. I mean, the expectations of on children are ridiculous. And so, you know, for boys, they are like we were saying earlier, like they're more disruptive. It's really difficult for them to sit still. And um, girls, for whatever reasons, hormonal or socialization, are able to do that at a younger age. And so, the boys are the ones who are plucked out, and they're you know, you're being bad, you're being naughty, you have to go to the principal's office, you have ADHD, here's your pills. Right. And so whereas girls are sort of falling under the radar, I don't think that they don't have it yet. Um, I don't think that there's any I don't think there's such thing as adult onset ADHD was just a term I've heard with some women who are at a diagnosed. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that, you know, you you have certain stages in your life where your symptoms become more um pronounced. And so I think, you know, you bring in the element of hormones and as a woman, you're sort of like, oh, if we're going to talk about hormones, like that's a whole other issue, you know, because then you have the hormone fluctuation of adolescence and the hormone fluctuation in, in pregnancy and postpartum. And then now with perimenopausal, like it's just dizzying to try to think about yeah. like all the different things that are at play. And yeah. so... I think like what I try to remember is the, is, you know, when I, cause I will kind of gaslight myself all the time, which is like, you know, maybe I don't have ADHD. Maybe I'm just a feminist living in a misogynist post-Trump era. And I just need to go for a run, you know? Like, and <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, right. But then I remember like, oh, wait, I also really struggled in middle school. So how do I explain that? You know, like, I think there are just times in your life where these collateral symptoms, as you call it, like, I just love that term because mm -hmm. it really sort of takes it from this sort of medicalized um, psychiatric diagnosis to really kind of like, how are the structures serving you or not serving you at various places in your life? You know, I probably would have had a much easier time with babies if I had lived in a society where, you know, I had 
multiple generations helping me, but I didn't, I lived, you know, far away from any of my family. And so like, those are the structures that you kind of evaluate in our society where you're like, yeah, no wonder we're all struggling and we're all like high strung and full of anxiety because like, look what's happening to us. You know, this last year and a half is a great example of this like mental health revolution where we're all just like, yeah, we're really struggling. (laughs) I know, but we can just get on zoom with our therapists now. Yeah, that's true. But it's, you know, it's interesting. I interviewed, um, Gabor Mate, and one of the things he said was that genes don't change in a a matter of 50 to 100 years, right? They change, I think it's a thousand, I don't know exactly, but it's not in 50 to 100 years. So he was saying, you know, that doesn't explain the, the, the fact that it's rising, right? ADHD, the numbers are rising. It's not that it's genetic and suddenly there's just more people. He says that it's it's environmental. It's uh, like you said, the stress in the world. Um, we think we are such an advanced civilization and we have all this science and technology, but so much, like I call it the invisible, the sort of Wi-Fi stress that's been added into our, you know, all the radiation and not just to fit the actual radiation, but just the fact that now you can work, uh, you know, from your, from your home, you can, you can work you know, 20 hours a day, if you want to, you can make more money if you work more hours. It's just this whole pressure that's mounting. It's like a pressure cooker. And um, especially the little ones, you know, they're so sen- they're so sensitive to begin with because they're little beings. But there's some that are, like you said, the n- neurodivergent. There's some that are just more sensitive than others. Like Kai is more sensitive in a way than, than his brother. And every like, you know, pronounced stress, you can just see him react to it. Like his brother doesn't, it's like just rolls off his shoulder. And I recently interviewed Stephen Porges who um, wrote, uh, uh, created the polyvagal theory. And I think it's gonna be out this weekend. I'm really excited because he really gets into the nervous system and how the nervous system informs the brain and how it rewires the brain. So stress comes in and the nervous system goes into survival mode. And often with these ADHD kids, it gets locked there. So they're always like, like watching out for the next thing. And then that creates dopamine hits and they're like, oh, this is good. So I need more of that. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm, I know it's a slight detour here, but so I'm curious what you, what you think about, uh, we talked about, you talked about trauma a little bit and childhood experiences, um, the nervous system, right? Like, uh, uh, in your experience, do you feel that, that that's, that's a, a heavy part of the the influence on the environment, right? The, uh, by everything I just talked about, like the pressure, the school pressure, academic pressure, uh, parents fighting, divorce, um, and so forth, right? Do you, do you see that from your experience, from your research or with the people you talk to? Because I usually get to the bottom somewhere, there, there was some traumatic event, whether it was a traumatic birth or an di- early divorce or something where the child got locked into, um, survival, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do question that a lot, especially in my life. And, and a lot of the women who I've interviewed, there's, we, I think almost all of us have had some sort of traumatic childhood or especially a sexually traumatic childhood. And so again, you're kind of like, is it, is, is it, 
the trauma? You know, are we just having these, um, are we having working memory and executive function issues because of this is the sort of long-term manifestation, physical manifestations of, of a life of trauma, or is the trauma a life undiagnosed, <laughs> you know? And, and I don't know the answers to those. I mean, I think like, again, like I said, like the obsessive questioning for me is the ADHD part, you know, the fact yeah. that I'm like, I need the answers and I need to know what is the source and where, and, and I don't know if we will. I mean, I, I certainly enjoy talking about it and I love, you know, reading about it and I love all that research. And, and I think that's what makes us who we are, you know, having that fascinated, that that childlike energy and enthusiasm about certain topics and loving, you know, I always like to joke about you, like you can tell who the people who are with ADHD at a party because they're the stoners in the back of the room who are talking about the time space continuum. All right. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, that was always my experience. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, how, how will we know? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's almost like, you know, what we, what we need to focus on for our own well-being is like, okay, so regardless of where the origin is, you know, in terms of this behaviors, um, what can I do? And that's why I love the polyvagal theory, right? Which is like breath work, you know, right. like these are like proactive things you can do. Yep. Um, and regulate. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like, regardless of where this anxiety is coming from in our society, you know, okay. So what are the ways that we can, right. um, how can we help ourselves? You know? And, and again, it's that idea of like, now that we, now that we know what we can do, what are the structures we can and routines that we can introduce that are going to help us? So, but I so, mean, God, if you find out the answer to whether or not this is a <laughs> this is all I, just trauma, I don't I think would I will. Love to know, right? You, you know, I, I'm like you. I used to go from one thing to the next. Like that's the one. That's the cause. That's the yeah. no. That's that one. It's that one. And what I realized it like, uh, yeah, I, I agree. We'll probably never know. But I wanted to find out at least everything that impacts the human being's behavior, because if they're truly behaviors that, you know, if 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 you were born into this planet and you didn't know what ADHD was or what the DSM is, and you would just observe a child, if someone said, hey, watch this child play, what do you notice compared to that child? You would just say, oh, his behaviors are different. He's more, he, he needs to run more. He's more uh, impulsive and sees butterflies and goes that way, right? It wouldn't be that you said, oh, that child looks like they have a disorder because that, that part's made up. So if it's just behaviors, then I just told myself, like, what causes us to behave a certain way? And I agree with you. So let's say we do know. So big deal. But how can we regulate those? And not regulate those because there's something wrong with us. But how can we regulate them so we can interact in the world and not feel like a outcast or not feel like we're messing up again or, or having the wrong structure at work and we can't succeed at work because our secretary also has ADHD. You know, you have to kind of figure out how to how to get the most um, optimal environment. Now, yeah. uh, that, that said, um, you know, there there is something to 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 be said about uh, and this is what I meant earlier. I, I don't think I was very clear. Sometimes I'm not clear. And then later I'll remember, which was the question about, can people use it as an excuse? So let's say, uh, you know, somebody gets diagnosed with ADHD. There might be a, a little bit of a danger for them to, and you mentioned this earlier, to not do other work, to not uh, look at their environment, to do nothing, let's call it alternative for now. I don't think that's what it should be called, but to just simply rely on meds 
And even some of the therapies that are suggested, I think it's easy to just lean on those and go like, well, I'm just going to wait until that works, but I'm, I'm not going to do yoga, breathing or running exercise diet. I'm not going to do any of that because I don't believe in that. I think there is a danger in that uh, people just sort of lean on medica medication. Or, or not that they don't believe in it, but they don't, they don't know. I mean, I think it's just also a lack of education and, and an assumption that mm. we live in a society that, you know, uh, that uh, a pill is the first thing you need to do and the first to sort of the ultimate solution. And yeah, I am definitely right. not anti-medication um, and I'm certainly not going to turn down medication when it's life-saving. But I do think that there's yeah. just such a lack of awareness and, and our doctors who sit with you for 15 minutes don't say anything, you know, they just send you away with a prescription and that what I, that's the problem there. And I think, you know, what we're not looking at this holistically at all. Yeah, no, I agree. That's a great distinction. Thank you for saying that. Because you're right. I mean, that's one of my big pet peeves is that when my wife and I were in that situation, when we were like, okay, what ne what's next? Where do we get the information? You go to Google, and it takes you in what you think the right direction. But later, we realized it's an incomplete narrative. It's just one side. And it's the side that has the most money. So there's the most ads and the loudest bullhorn. But there's another side. And the more we explored that with our son, like, I mean, he's no longer hyperactive and he's no longer impulsive. I mean, when I say not impulsive, he still has impulsivity, but it's almost like to a natural, you know, human level type of impulsivity. And, and his uh, doctor said, uh, you know, he's going to have a lot of that for a long time. This six years later is not that long, right? So I have to believe a little bit like, okay, well, these things are dissolvable if we try everything bud meds. And trust me, there's been many moments where we're like, should we do the meds? Damn it. You know, should we try it? And we haven't yet. We're not a no forever, but we haven't yet. And we've seen enough results to say, you know, what? let's, let's continue. Right. And now do you have, uh, you have children? Yeah. You know, um, no ADHD. Oh, absolutely. ADHD. <laughs> I have, I have a 14 year old daughter and I have a 10 year old son. And, and so my 10 year old son is going into the fifth grade. And uh, we have this, my husband and I have this conversation all the time, which is like to diagnose or not to diagnose, you know? Um, and he understandably is concerned that a diagnosis will sort of stigmatize um, how he feels about himself. And almost like you were saying before, like it might limit him where he thinks I can't do X or Y or Z because I have ADHD, you know, and, and that he will sort of he will grow up with a lot of the misconceptions about what ADHD is as, and such a young age, he will sort of define himself based on this disorder. And so we're very concerned about that. But at the same time, I also sort of have my point of view, which is like, I grew up completely undiagnosed and it would have really helped had I known, you know, what, uh, what was, you know, I always sort of felt like I had this undiagnosed learning disorder. I had two older brothers who did very well in school, Ivy league, um, straight A's. And then I came along and my parents didn't know what to do with me, but in, you know, instead of thinking like, maybe she has a learning disorder, I felt like they sort of were like, you know, well, not everybody can get A's, you know, we can't win them all. <laughs> and they were so, no. you know, and they wanted me to feel like it was okay that if I didn't get A's, you know, so my mother used to say things like, you, you know, university isn't for everybody or, um, 
you know, your street smarts, you don't have book smarts. And, and I realized she was trying to make me feel better and to make me feel like I had worth outside of academia. But it also like, I felt terrible about myself. I felt like I wasn't a smart person. And, and I felt like for my whole life, I had been trying to prove that. Um, and so, yeah, we talk a lot about with my son, like, you know, how beneficial will a diagnosis be? Do we even want to get an IEP or a 504? Do we want to do that in the public school system? Or do we want to do something more holistic, like, like, you know, what we're doing, what we've decided to do, at least for fifth grade, which is to get him a private tutor who can help him, um, understand, you know, the, what structures he needs within his class, the classroom. And this is in, inside of the structure, obviously, to perform academically, to go on in the academic system, right? Yeah, well, what For happened? You. Yeah, I mean, this year, he did most of his fourth grade remote, right? And I was there helping him. He, so he basically had a full-time administrative assistant sitting with him, right? And he did amazing. And he had never, he didn't, you know, his sister always had straight A's, always has done very well in school. She's going into high school. She's never been an issue. And he was sort of like me where I was, you know, he got, you know, mediocre grades. And I always kind of shrugged and thought, well, not everybody gets straight A's. And then this year with my help, he did so well. And I realized, and I was actually at first, I was panicking because I was like, when he goes back to school, he's going to have these really high expectations of himself and he's not going to perform as well as he did with my help. And then he's going to feel terrible about himself. And then I stopped and I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's the absolute wrong way to look at this. What I should be saying is now we know what kind of help he needs in order yeah. to get these grades and, and he can't do it on his own. And that's fine. Asking for help is not a terrible thing. Now yeah. we know what kind of help he needs. We also, you know, I understand that having a private tutor it comes with, you know, that's comes from a place of enormous privilege and not everybody has that opportunity. Um, so that's when I think IEPs and, and, you know, a lot of work working through the special education system can be helpful. But again, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're living through this and we're just trying to do the best yeah. we can and we're making our decisions on the fly, but we haven't sought a diagnosis for him officially and gone that route because I think, again, just knowing what he needs and how to, you know, and knowing how to help him at home is where we are treating us, quote unquote. Well, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I think, you know, it's another great example of if we said, let's take school away, there's no school. So now what? Mm -hmm. You know, what are kids going to do? They're going to play. I mean, they learn by playing anyway. That's their social way of, you know, training their brain how to learn or they're not their social way, but it's their natural development way of learn of learning is play through play. There's a great episode I did with Peter, Peter Gray. Uh, learn to play is the book he wrote. And the way he talks about it is fascinating. And you get that, like, we think kids need to learn stuff like information at an early age. He says, no, they just need to learn how to learn, but how they learn is through play. And if we don't let them play, they're going to have trouble later. They may become good memorizers and, and, and spit it back out for a test, but they're just not going to be good at learning and they're going to miss something. Right. And so I always, it amazes me that if you take school out of the equation, ADHD starts to look kind of wobbly in the early ages. You know, it's like, how do we then diagnose someone if there, there's no grades or no sitting still? Right. So for me, that's a huge factor. Just like trauma is a, 
a huge uh, factor in, in, in the reaction of the nervous system. School is a huge factor in diagnoses, I think. I mean, it's a... Yeah, these deficiencies only exist when you're placed in a system that is <laughs> requiring right. something of you that you are incapable of doing because it's absurd what their expect their expectations right. of children. And, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and it's not just it's not school is the bad guy. It's any system you put there in place of school, for example, right? Factory or whatever, child labor or whatever you do to children that's not natural, it's gonna backfire somewhere. And so my question, uh, I've always had this question in the back of my mind is like, do girls perhaps not externalize, like you don't see the same symptoms, but is it possible that girls, because they internalize a lot more, that they later, that some of those issues will come out as other disorders, like eating, you know, you, you you're, uh, have written a book about that. Yeah. Um, you've had your own experience, like uh, depression, you know, things like that, because I told somebody about the trauma uh, theory and they said, well, no, what about girls? There's a lot of trauma, sexual trauma, abuse and stuff. And how come they don't have ADHD? Well, I think that's my theory is that they internalize it and process it differently. And it may show up as a, another psychological disorder, right? Who knows? And what do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, I think the expectations of women are very different and from the expectations of men. And so when you talk about like home life, a lot of women I talk to in my own experience as well has been, you know, we have the executive function issues that come with ADHD, like we are terrible housekeepers, you know, and um, because we don't care, you know, and yet we have been socialized to care. And so there's, we, we come up with these, a lot of these idiosyncrasies as women, which is like, you know, of course I don't like doing the dishes. It's boring. I would much rather be doing something yeah. else, but because I'm a woman, I feel like I am sort of morally inept if I don't keep a clean home and do the dishes and do all of these things. And so, you know, a lot of the ways that men are kind of off the hook when it comes to domestic duties, women take these on and they take them on in such a way that they feel like they are bad people and they are bad women and bad mothers and bad wives because they can't do these really, really mundane domestic tasks when you come like at the, you know, and so a lot of it comes down to like the amount of sort of guilt and shame that comes with some of the things that we struggle with, with ADHD and, 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 and lack of executive function are things that I think women experience more because it's the expectations of them as, you know, in terms of our socialization. Um, but I, there was another question in there too. There was like, there was like a twofold question. There was kind of the, how the, the ways in which women experience it, but also what was the second one? The um, it was, let's see. Um, it was a long winded getting there again, apologize, but it was mainly what I was curious about is do they, do they then process it differently, like internally, and it may turn into, uh, an, a different type of, uh, or different types of psychological disorders in the future. Right. So right now it might oh, be behavior, yeah. um, because it's got to go somewhere if we're saying that a lot of these stressor, stresses and traumas have an impact on a nervous system and on a brain, how do women, you know, then, then show that, or how does that show up? Uh, obviously um, th there's the symptoms that girls uh, or the behaviors girls have versus boys. 
Um, and all we would have to do is enlarge that. And then you could just diagnose more girls, right? You could just say, oh, that's also a symptom now for ADHD, by the way. So, mm. you know, um, I've heard some rumor about that, that they're going to do that to get, to get more girls in, which is sad, but, um, and, and, and of course the excuse is, well, you know, girls are overlooked, which is true, but they're just different behaviors. They don't behave like boys. You know, we're not the same. We're equal, but we're not the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, I know it's a kind of a, it is the stoner in the back of the party question like, whoa, what if, you know, what if all the bipolar and all the depression and all the eating disorder, what if that's all part of the same, right? Nervous system locked in, in defense mode kind of reaction. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I'm just curious. Same. I mean, I think it comes down to this idea that, you know, you are not built for this system. And, and so rather than thinking that you are the problem, you have to remember that the system is the problem. And so when there's something you don't like doing, like dishes, you know, rather than thinking I'm a terrible person, because I'm not doing my dishes, just think, okay, first of all, dishes suck. And there's nothing wrong with me that I don't like doing them. It's obvious, like who likes doing dishes? And and if yeah. you do, why? Um, so then you think, okay, well, then you can say, okay, you take, you've taken the moral charge out of your, out of the task, right? So then you can say, okay, well, I have to do the dishes because we need clean ones. And, you know, you can kind of rationalize with yourself why this has to be done. Or you can say, you know, I'll do it 50% of the time and my partner will do it 50% yeah. of the time, which I think we don't do enough. Right. Um, or you can again, take an you can, Adderall and then get the dishes done really well, you know? Sure, you could do that too, you know, or you could, you know, get, hire a cleaning person, which a lot yeah. of us do. And so again, it's, I think it's like, when when you sort of take that guilt and shame out of it, and then you can really take the structures and and think, okay, what do I need, and what's going to work for me, and what can I work with? And then, oh, the other one was was food and eating, and yeah, I mean, I think. Oh yes, thank you. Yep. Binge eating. I mean, this is this was something that I specialize in with my health coaching because I experienced it. I experienced binge eating. Um, for you know most of my life i've been on some kind of diet because i'm a woman who exists in our culture and i you know sort of because i was you know had a cycle of restriction i would binge eat and um so that became kind of the focus of my health coaching and it's what i wrote my book about which was realizing you know um the restrictive element that leads to binge eating and then sort of coming away from this i this uh, weight centric idea of health and, you know, kind of redefining what health means for me. And, and it wasn't until my diagnosis that I realized how common binge eating is for so many people with ADHD, women and men, for a myriad reasons, you know, it's not just because of dieting and having a weight centric idea of health, like that, you know, there is a lot that has to do with being inattentive and not really understanding your hunger and fullness cues and, you know, being really excitable and talking and loving to eat and, you know, the stimulation aspect of eating, like there's, it's such a fascinating topic for me because there's endless ways in which we, you know, use food. Um, but I think women, because we have so much more pressure to uh, be thin, we just generally fall into, again, this idea of like the moral charge of health for, uh, you know, I think health is much more morally charged for women and that you are, if you are not thin, you are less than in our society. And so I think women take that on much more than men, but it's certainly not um, 
you know, it's certainly not only experienced by women, but again, I think it's something yeah. we get really wrapped up in and we want to just do the right thing. And we feel like if we could just lose weight, everything will be great. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, binge eating is again, another fascinating topic I could talk for hours. about. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, recently I've been uh, doing a lot of studying and deep diving on addiction because it's, mm. it's said that, you know, people with ADHD are more likely to get addicted. And although there are very like interesting, contrary studies that are not really talked about, um, I, I noticed that even like overeating or, you know, we're all addicted to something. Um, it's either, yeah, overeating, shopping, medicating. Yeah, totally, totally. And it's, again, it's not that uh, one of my favorite sayings is you're not an addict. An addict is not an addict because he's an addict or an addict is not an addict because she's an addict. There's a reason for it. There's again, there's psychological reasons why we reach for, um, a soothing mechanism, right? for that distraction, it's because we're not willing to face ourselves. We're not willing to be with the emotions or whatever, whatever we didn't, uh, you know, get trained well in by our parents who, uh, you know, obviously didn't and did the best they could. Right. And then, so now we're trying to like you and I were trying to figure out like, why, why do I have this addiction and how do I, what do I substitute it with? Right. And I feel it's a little similar with ADHD. It's like, you know, if you're not sitting still and obedient, you're like morally the wrong one. You're like off, you're the outcast. And I feel like if we learn to, um, you know, again, realize why perhaps are we so addicted to stimuli or, and yes, they say it's, it's, it's the brain, but it's again, it really is the nervous system that informed the brain and it got rewired that way. So if we say it's the brain, it's kind of like not really looking at the full picture, I believe, mm-hmm. because it's uh, it's how we um, process things from the environment. It doesn't go straight to the brain. Well, um, and then, you, yeah. And then you're like, wait a minute, the gut creates serotonin. We have, okay, <laughs> we need to start over. <laughs> right. Now it's like, whoa. I mean, we're, we're learning, right? We're yeah. like all of us in medicine and psychiatry, they're all still in the dark, but they're all, like you said, you know, I don't want to be the one that says I got the cure and I found the cause because it, 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 maybe it's never meant to be found. Maybe that's all, that's a whole like set up, you know, you guys keep looking for it. You keep looking for it. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. It's the ADHD. I love that way when you said that, like, but isn't it the ADHD that sent me down the rabbit hole? Right. Yeah. But don't you want to look for something down there? <laughs> you know, I think it's great. Um, now let's talk about meds. Um, so do you, what, what is your take on it? I'm assuming you, you take meds or have tried it or I've tried it myself. I mean, like I said, I was on a cocktail of antidepressants for most of my adult life. And I felt like they were very helpful. I mean, they were really helpful for me when I went through postpartum depression and anxiety. And, um, and, and in 2019, I came across, there was this great New Yorker article on kind of getting off of psychiatric medication. And, and it was a really interesting kind of case study on, on just how we really are like experiments, you know, like we are just all human experiments when it comes to long-term medication of any kind. And that article really inspired me to just be like, you know, I'm so tired of wondering, 
you know, if this is who I am on the medication, imagine how bad it'll be off the medication because the medication wasn't working. Right. And so I'd be like, I'm still depressed. I still feel anxiety. But if I was afraid that if I went off the medication, it would be worse. And I thought I've gotten myself into a real pickle here. <laughs> I don't oh, want to yeah. keep upping the mo. I don't want to keep upping the dose because it doesn't feel like it's working. But my doc, that was my doctor's, you know, um, response was like, well, let's try more. Let's try more. Yeah. And so I had to finally get to this point where I was like, you know what? It's, ex it's going to be exhausting having these questions anyway. I just want to like wean off of everything and find my baseline. And mm. I think, you know, a lot of us feel that way when a lot of us are like, I don't want to try meds. I don't necessarily think everybody feels like, a, you know, aggressively anti-medication. Um, right. But I think that there is a sense that like, it's exhausting to think about, is this working? Is this not working? You know, and mm -hmm. sometimes it's easier to just exist without the medication. And yeah. that's how I yeah. kind of felt, right? <laughs> so I went out, so I, I was like, I just want to see what I'm like, you know, without it. And then I can work from there and then I can start reintroducing things almost like, you know, a, a, um, elimination diets, right. Where right. you're like, let's Process get rid of everything. Of yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I did with all of my, um, antidepressants. And then when it came to stimulants, you know, I was fascinated. And when I, when I first started my podcast, I asked every woman, I was like, are you on meds? What are they doing for you? Some people say they're the greatest thing that ever happened to them. What does that mean? You know, what is, what is working when you say it's working? What does that mean? I didn't even know what I was looking for. You know, I was just sort of like, yeah. what is this going to help me with? Is this going to help me like stay on task? Is this going to help me with the, like, you know, if I pop an Adderall, am I going to be able to clean my entire garage? You know, like those sorts of things. And, um, and, you know, not surprisingly, everybody's answer was different. And some people were, were loved medication. Some people found like, eh, I tried it. It wasn't a big deal. So that was the experience I had, which was I tried um, Vyvanse, which is the, mm -hmm. you know, the Adderall. It's the, um, I can't think of which Ephron, which, you know, which the, methem, yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's the Adderall family. Yep, yep. And the first day I used it, I was a machine. I was just doing things. And I, at the end of the day, I, um, I thought, okay, well, that was great. That was really fascinating. It could be placebo. Let's see how it goes, you know, moving forward. And after a couple of days, it just felt like it wasn't doing anything for me. I actually kind of started getting a little like jittery and, and a little, mm -hmm. um, almost like paranoid and agitated. And so I stopped and was talking to my doctor and I talked to my therapist and then I tried Concerta, which is the, is Ritalin and had a very similar experience. And so I sort of felt like, you know, I had always thought of these sort of psychotropic medications as things that you take all the time, you know, like an SSRI is a serious medication. You can't just pop yeah. that one day and not take it the next. Like when you're in, you have to like commit and, and the weaning process is months. And so I had been kind of thinking about medication that way, where it was like, all right, I'm committed and I'm going to take it for a long time and figure out if it's working or not working. And I've sort of think of it more now, like the way you described it, where I'm sort of like, yeah, I've got a project I have to do and I've got a couple hours I'm going to, and I'm going to try it. Um, but I've honestly, I mean, I have it in the house, but I haven't used it in ages because I've just never had a day where I felt like today's the day I need it. Yeah. Um, but I also know that like I have done a lot of work to come up with other structures in my life that work for me in terms of like 
morning exercise, you know, and I, caffeine yeah. is a great self-medication, you know, yeah, it's a stimulant. Uh, yeah. 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 And I stopped drinking, you know, I've, I'm sober now. And I, that's been in a tremendous help in terms of my mental clarity. And I had no idea how much alcohol had been affecting me physically until I became sober. And so like, you know, there's a whole list, a long list of like other ways in which I have been quote unquote, uh, medicating. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of my experts always say, look, medication is not bad. It has its value in society. And if you use it as a bandaid or as a temporary fix while you're, you know, it's like a, a duct tape on a, on a hole in the boat that works right. for you to get to the Harbor, but like, you can't keep going out that way. So, um, what I, what I'm, what I have a problem with personally is when parents are sold the narrative that, um, this is going to be for life. Like you're going to have to take, it's like a life sentence. And I hear this all the time. And there's certain things that parents tell me where I'm like, really, they're still saying that like the doctor, like how old is your doctor? Oh, late forties. Really? He's still saying those things. Like it, it's a, it's a life sentence and you'll get used to it and you can't, it can't be outgrown and all those things. And I just feel like, like you said, we're a human experiment. We throw these really potent. I mean, I've tried all Ritalin, you know, uh, Adderall, uh, all these drugs myself. And I was like, wow, this is really strong. And my dose was like a quarter of what most of those kids um, in some of the ADHD groups uh, that I was part of parents there were sharing the dosages. And I was like, mine was like a quarter and I was bouncing like off the walls and I'm an adult. I'm like a 200 pound adult, you know? So it just kind of worries me a little bit how, how loosely we throw these pills around. Um, it's just, it's sad, you know, some of these kids uh, are on like three, four pills for ADHD, ODD, uh, anxiety, can't sleep. And I'm like, yeah, no wonder. I mean, yeah, I get, yeah, I know. It's such an interesting topic. I mean, you know, especially like my, my instinct is always like, they need an hour at the playground first, you know, yeah. and then, and then start to work on some of these issues. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, our kids were on video games a lot during the pandemic and recently because of the summer camps, they were like almost like mu muscular atrophy. Like yeah. our youngest was on a bike and a bike camp. And the first day he's like, I'm dying. But today was day, what, three Wednesday. He is doing well. He last night he went to bed early. He's like, I'm so exhausted. And he was out. And I was like, yeah, see, that's there's no hyperactivity there because it's been it's been exerted by, you know, by exercise, most yeah. of it, right? They're still kids. I mean, they're still supposed to be somewhat hyperactive because they're kids, they're excited. Um, so now, um, what is your style, right? What do you coach? You work with women with ADHD, um, you know, next to also your work with uh, binge eating, right? Um, but since this is about ADHD, what's your, what do you coach and what do you find successful? What are your uh, women respond to, or what have you heard that really seems to work? Yeah, I deal with, uh, uh, what I specialize in is kind of anti-diet work. And, and, um, again, you know, we, 
we long for structure. We long for organization. We long for like waking up and having everything be perfect. And I feel like a lot, you know, I used to be a Weight Watchers leader back in the day. And so my book is about the fact that I started out as a Weight Watchers leader and like, how does a Weight Watchers leader become an anti-diet activist? And, you know, (laughs) I realize how so many of us um, are sold this bill of goods with diets. You know, diets are like, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. And I'm going to give you all these rules and I'm going to, you know, and everything's going to be great. And you're going to lose weight and everything's wonderful. And, you know, by following these rigid structures, a lot of the times we can get overwhelmed and then we stop and then we feel like failures. And so it's a very similar system where it's like, you know, when, when Oprah first, um, invested in Weight Watchers, New York magazine had this great piece where they were like, it's a wonderful investment for her because uh, with something like Weight Watchers, when when it's working, when you're losing weight, the program gets all the credit. But when it stops working and you start gaining the weight back, it's your fault. It's never the program's fault, right? Mm. And so they they create this belief that it's like personal moral failing if the program is no longer working for you. And I'm like, if if you if any other industry tried that, if a car dealership tried that, you know, <laughs> right. sold you a car, and then you're like, my car's were wrong and or my oh. car's broken down and they're like, sorry, it's your fault, but here you want to buy another car. You know, like it's, it, it really, once you sort of break it down and see it for what it is and pull back the curtain, you're like, this is ridiculous what we're being sold. And so again, it's like this idea that like, you are not the problem. The problem is the system. And so, um, let's look at like, you know, um, first of all, acknowledge like why they're appealing because we need, you know, we want to have rules and we want to have structures and we want, you know, we like that. Um, so let's find ways that we can introduce structure in our lives in healthy ways that don't involve a lot of restriction and a lot of like off limit foods. And a lot of these ways in which we get ourselves wrapped up in, in obsessive thinking that leads to the overcompensation that comes with binge eating at the end of the day. You know, I had gotten to the point where I, knew a binge was coming. And so I wouldn't eat all day long because I was trying to offset the inevitable binge, you know? And so Mm. it's like, you get into these restriction um, cycles. And so again, it's really kind of looking at like, what is our history with restriction? Because restriction isn't just caloric restriction. I mean, the restriction is in all the ways in which we deny ourselves because we feel like we're the failure, right? So there's like a lot to untangle there when it comes to like, um, empowering yourself to know that like, you are not the problem here. The problem is what you've been served. And, and so just applying those same philosophies to your health and your nutrition and your exercise and sort of, rather than feeling like you should be doing things like find your motivation and find your why. And a lot of those ways in which you can stick with something, you know, if it's, if it's meaningful, like, you know, when I had to exercise because I thought it was going to help me lose weight, I hated it. And I never did it. But now that I know that exercise is going to like, keep me focused and keep me energized and give me, you know, the, and, and sleep well. And like all the things that exercise does for you that are not weight centric, like I, it's a non-negotiable, like that's absolutely a non-negotiable in my day. And so, you know, again, it's sort of like when you're coming from a place of should, it's really difficult to feel motivated to look after your, your health and your mental health as well. So again, it's really like, you know, finding ways to, um, set yourself up for success as Mm -hmm. cliche as that sounds. Yeah, no, that's great. And what is your personal, uh, strategy? So one is, uh, exercise, right. To keep Mm -hmm. you, to keep yourself focused 
you mentioned also systems like uh, uh, so that you can function, not lose the keys or show up on time. Or uh, do you have any uh, tips in that uh, direction of what works for you, right? It doesn't have to be just for women, obviously, but what works for someone with ADHD, uh, what are your strategies? Yeah, I, I have productivity windows. Um, you know, I noticed that like I get up and hit the ground running when I wake up. I'm a morning person and and I get a lot done. Um, I'm not a nine to fiver at all. Never have been. Excuse me. And so I realized that I have productivity windows. And so I try to, you know, have my day set up so that like, you know, before noon is when I'm really like into doing energetic, you know, creative things, new ideas, chasing leads, you know, building empires and all of that stuff. Whereas mm -hmm. at night, that's when I'm like, my brain has kind of quieted down and I can focus. I don't know about you with edit, if you edit your own podcast, but like, I can't edit my podcast mm -hmm. at nine in the morning. There's too much happening, but yeah. like I edit my podcast at nine at night when like I'm settled uh. and I can kind of focus. So it's, you know, it's being aware of like what works for me and and planning yeah. my day accordingly and i so again it's like i don't have a big breakfast because i know that when i eat i usually get really tired afterwards and i get really sluggish so i tend to you know get all of my excitable stuff done early in the day because i know that like once i start introducing the food um, that's when I start to slow down. And so, you know, it's, again, it's just being aware and knowing that there are ways that you operate and there's nothing wrong with how you operate. And it goes back to the kid in the classroom, right? Like, it's just like, once you can cater to your strengths, then the sky's the limit, right? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, uh, if we optimize our environment to serve us, and we don't look at ourselves as the problem, but we say there's a problem here in my room or in my schedule uh, that's not working for me. And we get the right support from our husbands or from our friends or coworkers and whatnot. Uh, there is a way we can actually function really well. And mm -hmm. no one's perfect. Nobody, there's no normal brain. There's no perfect person. So if we can live a life that is fulfilling to us, right? We, our kids are going to have issues. They're going to struggle. We have issues. You know, the world has issues like that's part of the deal. But if we can find some solace and, and some serenity in it, right. Isn't that kind of like we did it, you know, it's like we made it. I think. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I love having these kind of conversations and trying to get to the bottom of it all, because that's, I mean, that is, um, that's the fun of it all. Right. <laughs> just and like, like I, I call it sorting through our trash, you know, where we're just like, yeah. we're looking through it all and trying to figure it all out. And, and in the not? end, in the end, there's more trash and there's a new, <laughs> a new dumpster, and a new town, right. And never ends. But I think it's, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, it's what I, what you and I both are doing. I think we're, we're sorting through it to find our own answers for ourselves. Right. And then we hope that if we share this with someone else, it might make a difference for someone else, not for everybody, but maybe 15 people. Great. Even if it's one more person, I think we feel good. We're like, oh, wow, this person's life changed because I shared my story, right? And that's kind of, I think that's what we're all about is these sharing our stories, right? 
Yeah. And I think, um, I think that whatever struggles we might have experienced in our lives leads us to be quite empathetic and in the end, which I think is a great quality. Beautiful. I think this is a good place to um, uh, complete our podcast because we could go on for hours and <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a bottom though. You know, I think it might sound like a bottom, but uh, uh, no, this was great. And uh, I just want to let our listeners know that uh, obviously they can check out your podcast, which I will post in the show notes, uh, women and ADHD, and then also your book worth it, a journey to food and body freedom. Um, I will will post all that in the show notes and make sure that uh, whoever's listened and is more curious to go deeper to the bottom, they can do that. Um, but uh, Katie, thank you for your time. I just want to, uh, first of all, thank you for the work you're doing with uh, not only uh, food, but also ADHD in this case, obviously ADHD in women, for being an advocate, for being a mother, for being a seeker, and for working really hard. I acknowledge you for <laughs> not... <laughs> not misplacing your keys most of the time <laughs> takes hard work. Um, and, and thank you for your time for being on the show. Appreciate it. Oh yeah. Thank you for having me. I really, I really appreciate the conversations that you are having around this and, and yeah, the questions that you are raising and, um, yeah, we're all, we're all looking for the answers at the back of the party. <laughs> That's right. Until next time. <laughs>